Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson. Matthew Dickerson. Sit back and relax. It's time to talk technology. Hello, fellow navigators of the future. Pull out your virtual maps and digital sextants as we set sail, forging our way ahead into the great unknown. Under the captaincy of an imposing figure standing firm at the stern, gaze fixed unwaveringly at the horizon. It's Matthew Dickerson. Greetings, Matt. Oh, thank What's you. the weather forecast? Well, the weather <laughs> Some forecast... clear skies ahead, I hope. Very clear skies <laughs> with a whole range of different bits coming in from the sides, I think. But I'm a bit excited this week because there's been an announcement by Tesla that caught me completely unawares. And when I say that, they've done this same thing in some places around the world, but in patches here and there. And I hadn't heard any news that was going to happen in Australia. But during the week, Tesla made an announcement and a little software change as well that I think will have more of an impact on the uptake of EVs in this country than any government decision so far. Which is probably good for Tesla in the long run. It probably is, but I I actually spoke to Tesla during the week because I was a little bit confused and perplexed as to why they would do it. So let me go back a step. Tesla, when they first came out with their first Tesla car, they said, well, no one's going to buy this if they've got nowhere to charge it. So Mm. unsurprisingly, part of that whole process was to put in superchargers. So if you go back, they had their first sedan, the first Model S, you could buy on the 22nd of June 2012. And the first six superchargers were, or stations were announced and opened on the 24th of September 2012. So mm. pretty much at the same time, a couple of months apart. And oh, that early? That oh, early, wow. yeah. yeah okay. And in Australia, 10th of December 2014, the first superchargers were opened, and that was the day after the first Model S's were delivered in Australia. So basically 2012 in America, 2014 for Australia, and one of the big things was if you wanted to buy an electric vehicle, well, it was obvious you'd buy a Tesla because they had the charging infrastructure. And of course, back in 2012 and 2014, there weren't many chargers, but they were building on that, and that was part of their whole concept. And those first Tesla Model S's, had free lifetime supercharging. Whatever you own that car, forever in a day, you can just charge up with those superchargers for free. And I had one of those original mm. Model S's that I could charge up lifetime for free, which you just didn't think about it. You just drove up to a supercharging station and started <laughs> charging up. It was quite interesting. Jump forward to today, and they've now got approximately 4,678 supercharger stations worldwide. And that's comprising, obviously, there's multiple charging stalls at each charging station, 42,419 individual charging stalls. So Mm. they've got a fair presence in the charging environment. On top of that, they've got about 35,000 registered destination chargers and lots of places that aren't registered as well. So motels, cafes might put a destination charger in. So they've got a huge competitive advantage. And I've spoken to people when they've been looking at EVs and they've been thinking about, one particular model or a Tesla or one particular brand or a Tesla, and they go, oh, yeah, but Teslas, they've got chargers everywhere. Oh, I think I'll go that way. So that's been a huge competitive advantage. This week they said, we're going to open up our charging network in Australia to all brands. Anyone that's got that same CCS2 connection, which is a standard connection, mm. you can use our Tesla superchargers. And I was floored by that announcement. Now, they've only done it with five to begin with, five. They looked at their usage stats across the nation and they picked five supercharging stations that weren't heavily utilised 
and preferably ones that didn't necessarily have another charger, such as an NRMA charger, nearby. So they went and they targeted it. And I spoke to Tesla during the week and I said, I don't understand. Please tell me why you would do this, why you would take such a strong competitive situation and say, we're going to make it easier for our competitors. Who does that? What a crazy idea. They said, go back and look at our mission, our goal. And so I went and looked at that and the exact words of that, it's a long mission, they've got a long mission statement, but the critical part was it says that they their goal is to accelerate the advent of sustainable transport by bringing compelling mass market electric cars to market as soon as possible. So what mm. Tesla told me is this will do that sooner. Now, they went on to say, this particular person I spoke to went on to say that they also think that if more people buy electric cars, if the whole market grows, they might lose a bit of market share by offering their supercharges up to every brand, but they might actually sell more cars because the whole market will grow. Yeah. So as much as it sounds like a beautiful goal to electrify the world, maybe there's a little bit of economics in there as well. Get more cars out there, more people with EVs, and you'll probably sell more Teslas along the way as well. But it is quite interesting. So I've tested it out already. I couldn't help myself. I, <laughs> I took my Hyundai down and went, let's plug this into a Tesla supercharger. And I plugged in. I went to my Tesla app. And, it, of course, it had my Tesla vehicle there. And so I had to go back from that and then choose other charge and went there and start charging. Now, they charge for it. And, again, that makes sense. It's Even for Teslas now, you buy a Tesla now, you might get a certain number of kilometres free, but typically you'll pay for it to charge. You'll pay a little bit more to charge it up with a non-Tesla than you will with a Tesla. But that's you know, okay because you're not going to use a supercharger all day every day. No. Most people will charge up at home. And just to give you a quick idea, the cost to run a car, run an EV, just to give people some comfort around that, I did a couple of quick calculations. And, I mean, let's do the petrol one first. If you do some really simple maths, 10 litres per 100 kilometres, just because it's a nice round number, and $2 a litre. So just take those two round numbers. At that, you're going to pay about... 20 bucks per 100 kilometres. Okay, so mm. now you do the calculations. If your car got 8 litres per 100 kilometres, then 2 times 8, 16 per 100 kilometres, $16 per 100 kilometres. A Tesla, if you charge, or this is most EVs, most of them are around about 16 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres. Some are a bit better than that, some are a bit worse, but just take a, a bit of an average there in the middle. 16 kilowatt hours per 100 kilometres, and if you charge up with off-peak electricity, you can normally get pretty close to 10 cents per kilowatt hour, maybe 12, but say 10 cents, that's a $1.60 per 100 kilometres. So not too bad. Now, that's where mm. you'll mostly charge up. Most people charge up at home. NRMA charges, they're free. So it's going to cost you $0. Zero dollars I can do those maths pretty easy. If you then went to a Tesla supercharger, you'll pay $0.66 cents per kilowatt hour. So that costs you $10.56 per 100 kilometres. Still better than $16 per 100 kilometres. Yeah. And again, you'll only do that when you're on a trip. So you might drive it around your normal commute, your normal daily commute, back to your home, etc., on a regular basis. And every now and again, you go on a trip and you might pay a little bit more for that. But mm. that's a bit of a once-off or an irregular concept. So I'm a bit excited by that. I think that will accelerate the uptake because, as you say, there's just one less reason not to change over now, and that's exactly right. There is <laughs> one exactly less reason. That's exactly what I was just about to say. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I've stolen the words it, now. No, that's right. If, if you haven't thought about getting an EV already, or if you don't have one already, you know, it's got to make you start thinking about it, surely. Yeah. And the reasons just keep on coming. Exactly right. Anyway, that's my little bit of excitement over for the, for the time. <laughs> I'll go back to being captain now. <laughs> okay, folks, let's get rolling on with this week's show. Now, if diamonds are forever, then how about this? Virtual diamonds must be 
well, virtually forever? Surely, at the very least. Famous jewellery merchants, Cartier, are trying out a clever marketing tool, and VR is all set to become a girl's best friend. I like this, Matt. Where can I, <laughs> where can I go to get one? <laughs> well, this is actually a really clever concept in still combining the physical shopping experience with some VR. Hmm. A lot of VR stuff, they talk about trying on clothes at home and doing that in a virtual environment, take a photo of yourself with underwear on, for example, hmm. and then add some clothes to it as you go and the sizing will be right. And that's all done in the privacy of your own home. It must be expensive to stock a jewellery shop. If you're going to have yeah. the jewellery that is the nice jewellery that you want to get people excited about, even though they may not buy those particular items, you still want to have the expensive stuff, the stuff that's worth ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred thousand dollars. You don't have to have a lot of that jewellery, and it's not very big to start to add up to a large mm. amount of stock sitting on the showroom floor. Hence, why you go into some of these shops and they have security guards standing at the front door, and <laughs> everything's under lock and key. So, what Cartier have come up with is a concept where. They don't want to have the extremely expensive jewellery in all of their shops, but they still want you to experience that. So they've created VR that is very customised, very personalised, and as real as possible. And I watched a couple of videos on this. You'll go into a jewellery store and you'll put on a blank ring. So it's basically a ring that's got some little markings on it so that when you put it under a particular camera and light that's set up on the desk, then the camera and the VR environment can pick up that you've got a ring on that finger. And you look across to a little screen and suddenly on that finger, that hand that you've got under the light and the camera, you've got whatever ring you want on there. You can move your hand around under the light, <laughs> twist it back and forward, do whatever you like, and still over there in the virtual environment you can see exactly what that ring looks like. So my wife would think, oh, I'm wearing that ring. Exactly right. And So this I is actually, why it's such a good thing. It is. <laughs> You're right from a retailing perspective, maybe, but maybe not from a... a well, if she can just carry this around with her all day, every all right, day. right, okay. I see where you're going. <laughs> it's all about her perception. <laughs> so don't worry. If someone wants to look at your hand, no, don't look at my hand. No, 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 no. Look at this look screen at this over screen. here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe take a photo of it and send that to your friends. Oh, look, my darling husband just bought me a new ring. She can carry around a screen. A screen will be cheaper oh, absolutely. than the ring. <laughs> <laughs> and one of the things... When I read one of the reviews of this concept, it was that realistic that sometimes this person said that when they were looking at it, they'd actually go to move their hand out to just touch it with the other hand to feel it, and suddenly they'd realise that the ring on the hand was just a little flat disc, and, and they'd be disappointed, but then they put it back under, and oh, look at that, it's, <laughs> it's back there again. So I think we'll see more of this. I think we'll see more... An excellent marking tool, yeah. Yeah, that's right, but more of this VR experience in-store VR experience because you still want people, retailers still want people to come into their stores and if you can make that an experience, and again, you can't do that at home, you're not going to set up all this equipment at home, but you can just imagine going out shopping going, oh, let's duck into this store because they've got that cool little VR experience, I can look at the ring and, and I'm only doing it for the technology of course, but then once you see it, you mm. might like it, And but again, trying all of the different rings as well, they may not have any of those rings in store, it might just be we've got a few of the basic rings and we'll have that ring for you tomorrow, madam, and it'll turn up on a courier from wherever that's kept or some central warehouse and away you go. So it well, sounds good. With more and more households having VR headsets as well though, I think uh, we're probably going to be in trouble because people start sitting down in the lounge chair and putting on the VR headset and doing their uh, shopping by the internet. Doing their online at, shopping with this. Yeah. yeah. Now, and, and I, you're right, and that happens now with certain things, but it does expand that definitely. And it's the fine line. I think what Cardio is trying to do is still bring you into that 
retail, that physical retail mm. presence. So how do you combine online technology with bricks and mortar? And there's a whole bunch of different companies around the world that are trying different ways to do that. This may be a clever way to do it, and they may not ever get to the stage where you can do it with a VR headset or all online because they want to have you in the store yeah, when the experience that's right. is happening. It's about the physical experience of being in the store. And it's less likely that you'll go and purchase from another online retailer. You might look at it with your VR headset and go, oh, hold on, I see who else has got a ring that looks like that. When you're in the store, then you're more likely to buy from that particular retailer. So that's another reason. So you're trying the diamond ring and you go and buy yourself a cubic zirconia. Is that what the, you're saying that the concern is? And if you can't pick the difference, who cares? Who cares <laughs> that it cost you one twentieth the amount? So I'm with you on that one. So. Okay, doke. It's the Wacky Races, folks, 2023 style. But there's no Penelope Pit, pit Stop or Ant Hill Mob here. And the first prize will go to the team who can convert a diesel engine to run on hydrogen. Matt, the stakes are high because the patent on this thing is going to be worth a penny prettier than the delectable Miss Pit Stop herself, if you don't mind me making a metaphorical mash of that intro. So Penelope was obviously your favourite on Wacky Races. It was the biz. <laughs> <laughs> and what I love about this story is that it's being done here at the University of New South Wales as where all the research is being undertaken and where the test rig is sitting at the moment. Our challenge in this nation is to keep it here and make sure mm. the patent application is here and the royalties flow through to here, but sometimes that doesn't always happen. But, but converting diesel to hydrogen, that's amazing. It is amazing. And one of the things that I don't know the answer to, I, I'm going to speculate, but I haven't been able to find the definitive answer, is they're at the point where they're getting this hybrid mix of hydrogen and diesel in a diesel engine around about 85 to, say, 90% hydrogen and 10 to 15% diesel. And I'm intrigued as to why they still need the diesel in there. And I've got one, as a speculation, one almost guess that I'm going to have about it all. But the concept here is that you've got a lot of diesel engines in a lot of industries. So take a mine, for example. You've got equipment in the mine that is worth literally each one millions of dollars. Mm. To say, for example, we're going to go net zero with what you're pulling out of the ground there at mine. So you've got to replace all your trucks with hydrogen trucks or EVs, whatever it might be, the mine, and sure, mines make a few dollars, but the mine's going to have a huge expense there. If someone, University of New South Wales in this case, if someone can come up with a way to spend dramatically less money, convert that engine yeah. to take hydrogen diesel mix in this case, and then keep running with a dramatically reduced CO2 output, then that's going to be a huge bonus. So I think of heavy haulage trucks, I think of mm trucks that are running across Australia, ones that are less likely to be EV and ones that will go eventually to that hydrogen scenario, getting that crossover, getting it to be hydrogen in the short term or a hybrid hydrogen diesel sounds like a really exciting thing. I can see, again, if you had the patent for that, you started having manufacturers for that, there would be some nice royalties flowing into someone. One of the reasons that I think that, and I, again, I can't find any def, definite information on this, but one of the reasons I think that they still have a bit of diesel in there is, of course, a diesel engine doesn't have spark plug. So mm. you're relying on a diesel engine for the diesel, and forget the hydrogen hybrid, the diesel to be compressed to the point that it self-ignites. Now, whether they've been able to get hydrogen to do that or not, that was one of the reasons I thought maybe mm. they're keeping just a small amount of hydrogen, uh, sorry, of diesel in there to still ignite it. Once it ignites, it burns the rest of that hydrogen that's in the combustion chamber. Mm. I can't think of any other reason why you wouldn't be aiming for 100% hydrogen rather than a 90% or 85% I've got nothing mix. for you. Yeah, this is, 
<laughs> this is all wizardry, I tell you. Well, it is a bit of wizardry, and I think that's the thing. One of the things they're talking about is getting the mist just right to actually get that into the combustion chamber and get it to burn, and that's where the secret source is apparently. So hydrogen, yeah, anyone can get access hydrogen. We all know what diesel looks like, but how do you mix that? How do you mist that? Get that at the right density in mm. that combustion chamber to then have it still work, and you still want to keep somewhere near the equivalent power output. If you've got a, a mining truck going up an incline and you say, well, here's this new hydrogen truck, but it's got half the power, you go, oh, so yeah, I can't no load good. it up properly and start going up that incline. Well, that's no good to me. So trying to keep that same amount of power. And again, the density per litre or per kilogram of the energy density per kilogram, for example, of diesel versus hydrogen, I don't know what that is, but again, it would come down to what temperature you're storing that hydrogen at, how compressed that hydrogen might be, are you storing it as a gas or a liquid? So all sorts of questions there. But I imagine that the amount of energy in one kilogram of hydrogen would probably be similar to one kilogram of diesel. A big advantage of hydrogen over a battery, if you're talking about long-haul trucks, is that there's better energy density per kilogram, so you don't have to have as much weight on that truck. Mm. Diesel versus hydrogen, don't know that. That's a bit of research for me to do for next week or next time <laughs> or when this goes a bit further, but it's pretty Stay exciting tuned, at the folks. moment. And it is something that I see, well, there's already research going on across the world. So it's not just the University of New South Wales that's come up with this idea, other places across the world, but it is a race. It's a race to see you can get that nailed, get, that get first, it right, and yeah. then they will be, uh, you know, again, royalties flowing in all over the place. It'd be incredible. Now, just how smart are your bathroom scales? Do they give you a BMI and a body fat estimate? Does it give you a reading on your heart rate? Well, that's very nice, but those tricks are getting a bit old hat these days. How's about a set of scales that could measure how steady you are on your feet? Matt, what are we doing here? Training the next generation of bathroom ninjas? <laughs> I can just imagine a ninja bouncing <laughs> off the walls in the bathroom. You've got to stand on one foot on these scales and measure your steadiness. No, but yeah, these new scales measure steadiness on they, your feet. They measure your balance level to try and get to the stage where you can take some steps to address it. It is aimed at the elderly because we do know that when people are, say for example, in aged care facilities or they start to get to the stage they lose their balance, how many times do we hear anecdotally where someone's fallen over and mm. some elderly person we know has broken their hip and they're in hospital and everyone goes, oh, no, they've broken their hip. We know what's next. And sometimes they'll end up extended periods in hospital. Sometimes mm. they'll end up going from their home to aged care or sometimes they end up passing away. So breaking your hip is a bad, bad thing from my experience in, in terms of that aged care environment. So if you can work out the point where someone's getting a score on their steadiness that's below normal – then you can start to take some steps to address that. And that's exactly what these scales do. You stand on your two feet on the scales like you normally would, but you stand there for 60 seconds. And it's detecting just micro-movements. Now, mm. if you're steady, a normal person that's normal balance, normal steadiness, you can stand there and they give you a score out of 10. If you get a score, say, for example, of 7, 8, even nine, yeah, you're very steady. They've said it's very unlikely people are going to get a score of 10. That would almost mean there's no movement at all. And as you know, when you're standing up straight, you're just moving your toes ever so slightly, just moving your body. Yeah, it's just tiny, fine little micro-movements of the muscles. And that's what this is picking constantly up. Constantly twitching, yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's exactly right. Now, if you're 
less steady, then you're doing those movements a lot more. You might be rocking a little bit back and forth, side to side. And when you start to get scores around, say, three or four on this, that's when they're saying, okay, you need to do something. Now, it's not like you do that and they say, right, sit down, never stand up again because you're going to fall over and break your hip. They then can get to the point where someone, some medical expert can say, here are some exercises for you to do to try and improve your balance. And I talked to someone just recently that's got Parkinson's and just very early stages of Parkinson's, and they're doing a lot of these same sort of exercises, these balance exercises, Mm. just to try and improve their fine motor skills because obviously the nervous system is slowly breaking down. So that's exactly what you do in this scenario. You'd try and train yourself to have better balance so you could just go on about your life, but you might dedicate, I'm not sure, 10 minutes, 20 minutes a day to doing these exercises. You're going to stand on these scales and you get a score of 7 or 8. Okay, that's great. I'm, I'm fine for now. I don't need to worry about it. But you can imagine in a nursing facility having everyone go and stand on these scales once a month, for example, mm. and just mark off everyone, right, these 20 people are okay. Oh, these 10 over here, we need to get some exercises going for you and then test again to see how your balance is. And that's the other big thing they found is when they've identified that people have got low scores and they do these exercises with them, a month later, they're doing these same tests and suddenly their scores, well, not suddenly, gradually, mm. their scores are going up to higher levels. So it's not as if we just throw our hands in the air and say, that's it, we give up. We've got something to do about it. And removing some of the guesswork, yeah? Removing some of the guesswork. And you can probably say, gee, Jimmy looks a bit unsteady as he walks down the hallway there, but it's not as scientific as saying stand yeah, on these scales right. for a, a minute and then we'll give you a, an absolute score out of it. So good idea. How much intelligence can we get built into our scales? You've rattled off a bunch of stuff. My scales do most of those things that you just mentioned there. And I love the idea that you're getting all this information out of your scales, but wow, what are we going to have next? It just does seem incredible, doesn't it? (laughs) Now, dirty solar panels are robbing you of the valuable solar energy that you could otherwise be harvesting. And I'm sure you'll agree that Australia does dusty rooftops fairly well. But getting up onto some roofs to clean solar panels is often quite tricky and potentially fraught with peril. In 2023, there's got to be a better way, Matt. If only there was some kind of innovation, something more than hoisting up a small child dressed as a 19th century chimney sweep. (laughs) Tuppence to clean your solar panels, mister. (laughs) Or getting up on your roof with a hose, which just sounds like a disaster waiting to happen, doesn't it? doesn't it? Talk about a broken hip. That seems like a surefire (laughs) way to come down. I want to know what they do in Israel because I see a lot of technology startups come out of Israel. In fact, my first robotic lawnmower came out of Israel. We have talked before about some lab meat that's being done in Israel. And this is another one that's started up in Israel. So they must have a real innovation focus there in Israel. I haven't thought about Israel in particular about tech innovation, but they must have. So what are they doing with their solar panels then? What they're doing with solar panels is they've looked at it and they've said, we need to generate more power from renewables. So you can install lots more wind turbines and solar panels, or you can look at the solar panels that are out there And the estimation is that we are losing as much as 15% of our potential generation by having dust on our solar panels. And again, you're right. In Australia, we've got dust. We know how to do dust. And so we've got dust on solar panels. We also know how to do sun. So you want to... (laughs) That's right. So let's get that maximum sun. Make the most out of that. Yeah. So what this particular startup's doing is rather than risking life and limb by getting up on a roof with a hose... They'll send a drone in, a robotic drone, that will clean your solar panels. And one of the great parts about it is many solar panels are on a roof that's got a slope. 
maybe mm. 22 and a half degrees. And if you're two 30, stories up even, and that's common enough. That doesn't sound like fun, does it, to get no, up there and clean those solar panels? Not for this bloke who gets vertigo. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so what this will do is this will drop off the drone. It uses vacuum pads to actually hold on to the solar panels while it uses a brush to go and clean the drones. It moves along, keeps cleaning all of the solar panels. Sorry, did I say clean the drones? Yeah, 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 cl- we knew clean what you meant. The, clean the solar panels, <laughs> and it moves along, cleans all the solar panels for you, and then fly away, fly away, robot. So then it flies away and does the next job. Obviously, at the very much startup stage at this stage, but there will be a point in time where you'll just pull out your app and you'll say, gee, they look a bit dirty, or it's been two months since I've cleaned my panels, I'll order a drone to come and clean them, and at some point in the next you know, it's week, day, month, not sure, it'll come in and you'll hear something on your roof and there's that robotic drone cleaning off your solar panels wow. and it goes away and does it and you'll pay some small fee, but you'll get that money back in the extra electricity that you'll obviously yeah, generate right. by not losing that 15% that you might lose. Sounds good. Now, I, I've been to large-scale solar farms and they'll sometimes, not always, they'll sometimes have rails across the top where they'll actually mount a device to go along and clean all the solar panels. So that's great if you've got a string of a 1,000 solar panels to clean. Mm. But No, no one's one, going to do that on their house. That's right. No one does it at home. And it wouldn't be economical to have a device sitting up there just to clean it every couple of months for the extra electricity you might get. So it doesn't make sense when you might have only 50 solar panels. But this does make sense, depending on how much it costs. But I can just imagine it's going to be pretty good for it to go from house to house, cleaning solar panels on those roofs and not having to charge much for each roof it does mm. to get that electricity generation up. So, again, just people are coming up with event inventions, innovations that we didn't know we needed 20 years ago, but... This is a really important one because, again, we can recover 15% of the power that we could be generating now out of the infrastructure that's already installed. Robotic drones. Awesome. And while we're on the subject of solar panels, here at Tech Talk, we're really interested in the innovative places that people think to stick them. And coming in at clever option for solar panels number 26, Matt. (laughs) This is a great idea. Why not take those ugly, horrific, terrible-looking solar panels and put them over those ugly, terrible, horrific-looking parking lots? Who could complain about that? Covering up a parking lot with solar panels sounds like it makes sense. And this is important because in the US last year, at least 75 large solar projects were vetoed, mainly based around complaints from people that lived near them because they didn't want those big, ugly solar panels. In the UK, 23 solar panels were rejected, or not solar panels, 23 solar panel projects were rejected last year across the UK, again, based on the same thing. So France has said, you know what? We're going to make you put solar panels over parking lots because, again... Just vast amounts of space there or, or and if you, to put a roof on top of them. Now, there are some parking um, stations that don't have a roof on their upper floor, but, you know, how hard is it to, to throw a roof on uh, to hold up some solar panels? That's right. And the other good thing is I think it would be good from a customer perspective. If I'm parking my car at a parking lot, well... Let's put it under a shade. Yeah. I, I don't care if it's solar panel or just shade cloth, but it's under shade. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Anyone who's done Christmas shopping in the summer here in Australia knows how good it is to park your car in the shade. Exactly right. So the French Senate has approved a bill requiring any parking lot with more than 80 spaces to be half covered. 
So at least half it. Now, again, if you're going to put half covering, you might as well just go all the way. You're probably going to get the money mm. back pretty quickly with the electricity you'll generate. So that comes into effect later this year. And if you've got more than 400 spaces in your parking lot, it must be compliant by 2026. Assume that's more planning that might need to be done for those ones. I don't know what they'll give in terms of a retrospective look to some of these. So in other words, if you've got a parking lot now that's more than 400 spaces, will you have to be compliant by 2030, for example? This applies to new parking lots at this stage, but it would make sense Mm. to put the laws in place and say, well, you've got to do it backwards. And again, I just can't see people going, well, there was lovely black bitumen there before, and now you've got... (laughs) Solar panels. What about all our lovely cement? Yes, <laughs> <that> concrete. <laughs> the other good thing about it is it's probably going to be giving you electricity closer to where you need it mm. because you don't have a parking lot with 400 spots out in the bush somewhere. You have that normally in a city where you've got electricity being used. So a couple of things there. I can see it being used, obviously, straight into the grid nearby. But I can also see some of these companies saying, well, we've got some electric vehicle charges in our parking lot because that's a way to attract people to our parking lot and we can charge for that electricity that will sell people there. So we might prefer the electricity from our solar panels directly into that. So again, Mm. it's not losing much in transmission when it's got to travel 20 metres to be used rather than 20 kilometres or 2,000 kilometres or whatever it might be. So good idea and well done to the French for coming up with a great idea and I assume that we'll see other countries around the world copying. Now, for those of you thinking that your internet speed of 100 megabits per second was pretty quick and neat and you're all chuffed with yourself, here's a public service announcement to let you know that you're falling well off the pace. The new standard is shifting upwards as 5 gigabytes per second is now out and available in the US. Matt, keeping up with the Joneses is becoming quite exhausting. Five gigabits per second. Doesn't that sound exciting? And that's, Unbelievable. That's a symmetrical service that you've got the option of five gig up and down. Did I say bytes or bits? Sorry. You said bytes, but that's Sorry, fine. my bits. apologies. Yep, yeah, that's yeah. right. These are five, gig- five gigabytes would be nice as well, <laughs> but five, <laughs> yeah. five gigabits in this case. Now, some people mightn't get that excited about it. There was all that silly talk about 25 megabits per second being enough. But even when I upload this podcast, which is usually a file that's over 100 megs, and I go into my particular portal that I use, and I say upload, and I've got a one gig connection, and it takes not that long, 15, 20 seconds, Mm. whatever. But a five gig connection, it could take me four or five seconds. Imagine the productivity gains I would have out of that alone, (laughs) (laughs) out of just one thing. But the problem is when you've got, in Australia, where we've got still, say, fibre to the node, which might only have a maximum, say, in some places, 25 or, say, 50 megs per second, mm. megabits per second download speeds, then you sometimes go, that's fine. And other times you go, gee, I wouldn't mind a bit more speed. Mm. And upload, I think, is one of the big killers that not a lot of governments think about, understand, even know about. But getting five gig symmetrical speeds, it does make us look a little bit embarrassing, doesn't it? We're, we we seem to be slipping behind in a bit of technology, don't we? With our internet connections, with our electric vehicle infrastructure, with our electricity production, we need a bit of a shake-up here in Australia. I think we need a government to come along and say, we need to be a technology-innovating country again, I think we were once upon a time, rather than a bunch of laggards. I feel a bit embarrassed at the moment. But yeah, and one of the problems, of course, is people going, well, you know, the, the 50 or, or 100 megabits per second, that's doing me fine right now. But as the the needs in computing 
get higher and higher, yeah. you're going to feel like you're lagging further and further behind and you're going to be getting more and more frustrated with the way things are running. Imagine how quick you could download your assignments from ChatGPT <laughs> at five gigs per second. I mean, those students would have those assignments done. They'd, they'd get them done that day. Starting and say, to break out in the hives. <laughs> Mr. Eddie, can you give me another assessment? I've done that one already. <laughs> but it does sound exciting. And again, from our perspective here in Australia, you want to see this happening around the world so that we do feel pressure mm. on our NBN or our, NB, our internet service providers to keep up, as you say, with the Joneses, to keep catching up. We got excited when we got NBN. We got excited when we got 100 megabits per second. Gigabit speed sounds great, but when we see five gigs as a standard sort of service, and it's not that expensive, US dollars, 155 a month. Now, I know most people aren't paying 155 US a month in Australia for their internet connection, but... For five gigabits per second, that seems like a very cheap price to me. Mm. So anyway, bring it on over here as far as I'm concerned. So with AI now writing entire essays and short stories, creating artworks and such, all with just a couple of brief instructions, it's no surprise that the onslaught on human creativity should enter the realm of the music world. Matt... Google has some new AI that'll turn text into music now. And I do see those hives getting larger and larger. <laughs> when we talk about AI, the more we talk about it. So I've got a couple of demos here I'm going to play you just to see what you think of them. Oh, really? Okay. So this first one is one that's called Rising Synth, but basically it's just one where, and again, these aren't one that, anyone has actually produced these are ones where they've been given text instructions to create some music so enough of me talking what i'm going to do is i'm going to play this first one for you i won't play the whole thing it's a 30 second clip but i'll just play a little bit here and on it goes. Now, there's words in there. Yeah. But they're words that are designed that you can't really understand what yeah, the words are. I had are. no idea what they were seeing there. Exactly right. And it sounded like I should have. Well, and that's, that was the instruction in that was to put some things that was a, uh, maybe played at a festival during two songs, during a break between bands kind of thing. What oh, sort okay. of music would you play? This one here, though, the instruction for this one was, I want the main soundtrack of an arcade game. I want it fast, bass and upbeat, maybe with a bit of an electric guitar riff. I want it to be repetitive, catchy, easy to remember, but a couple of unexpected sounds. And so they came up, AI came up with this. Now throwing myself back to the Sonic the Hedgehog days, <laughs> this little hedgehog catching rings and whatnot. <laughs> that's exactly right. So that's what's incredible about that. There you have two pieces of music composed by AI. Someone typed in exactly the sort of instructions that I just described there, and then away it went, and a few seconds later, and both of those were only 30-second clips, but mm. away it went, and there's your music composed and done. So it sounds incredibly cool. scary. Now, the only difference between this one, or there's lots of differences, I suppose, but the main difference between this one and ChatGPT that we've talked about before is that you can't go and ask for some music on this one. This is Google showing off 
it's AI, yeah. and it is shown when you go and look at this particular site. Here are the instructions we gave it, and this is what it came up with. You can't go and ask for a piece of music, and I think they were probably worried about suddenly the top 10 on the Billboard Top 100 hits being taken up by AI-composed music or something. So yeah. you can't go and ask for your own music to be composed, but it, it's got probably 40 or 50 examples there, exactly as I've shown there, where it's got an instruction and then AI has gone and composed that music. Now, we'll talk a little bit... So we're not going to see all our, um, our, our top uh, artists in Australia with pitchforks and burning torches um, heading for the Google offices at all? Um. Well, maybe, because this is one, version one. How oh, yeah. is it going to look yeah. and sound and feel and operate by version 10? How long before we get to version 10? So this one's called, if you want to go and look it up, go and look up Music LM. LM is in uppercase for whatever reason, but I'm sure you wouldn't need to put that in if you go and Google it. And you'll look at all these different clips. There's longer clips in there, there's shorter clips, whole range of different music, but it's, it's just it's pretty mind-blowing wow. and scary <laughs> yeah. to be able to go and do that. Now, I think some people do use this sort of thing where they'll say, I want to get a bit of a feel for the top of music. Say that arcade example. I might just get a few samples to get a bit of a feel for what my client might want. And then they produce five samples almost instantly. Let the client listen to those and they go, oh, no, I like number three. Oh, good, right, we'll go and work on that and then compose it properly mm. with that mood and feel. Or maybe they'll just be lazy and say, great, <laughs> I'll just use that and give me a three-minute version of that. Oh, wow. <laughs> but it is, you, you're right, it's scary, it's incredible. What's going to happen when you combine this and then you look at the the Dali artistic images that we've talked about before where mm. artists are going to have their pitchforks and storming That's the offices right. of AI, And then we're going to talk a bit more in the next story about ChatGPT is going to come back and haunt you a bit more. It's just a, a crazy world out there at the moment with a whole range of different things happening with AI. And uh, now, uh, yeah, it's just it's a bit of anxiety about the unknown. What, what's, how's it going to end up? Yeah, mm. that's right. And the next story, we'll, we'll get to the next story. We'll get to the next story. Because I, I, I want to talk a bit more about where's it going to end up in that one. So we've well and truly by now established that AI is here to stay. And some would say, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, it'll be interesting to see exactly what the pushback will look like and how effective that may be. But for now, there are some who are trying to make good with their glass half full. Matt, what are the potential opportunities in some of our prominent industries? There are some industries where you would be looking to either change your job description or just go and get a new job altogether <laughs> because there are some things where <laughs> just AI will tools. do it. Just shrug it off. One of the things that some employers are saying is that we want our teachers, our educators, our university professors to start to use AI, use ChatGPT in their courses because mm. when they get out in the real world, they'll It'll be using be it. And that's a scary concept, isn't it? Imagine mm. setting an assignment. Imagine saying to your students, go home, Use ChatGPT to produce an assessment like this and I'll be judging you on how well you've integrated the concept with what ChatGPT gives you. Imagine an English teacher saying, go and compose a 100-word poem using ChatGPT, but then I want you to just tune it up a bit, personalise it a little bit. Mm. Imagine what you'd get back and, and then... There wouldn't be any of this concept about you're cheating kids because you use ChatGPT. Hold on, did you really use ChatGPT? I'm not sure you did for that. <laughs> <laughs> so some jobs that people are using ChatGPT right this second as we speak. There's a law firm that's already talked about the fact 
that they used to get junior lawyers in their firm to do an initial analysis. Someone would come in and they'd say, I think I've got a bit of a case here. I think I want someone to be engaged to go and do something involving whatever's just happened. And they'd put a junior lawyer on that. The junior lawyer would do a bit of research, go and look at some precedents, put a bit of a, a brief analysis together, maybe a one or two pager, and then the senior lawyers, the experienced lawyers in the firm would look at that, make sure it all made sense and all seemed okay, and then they give that to the client and say, here's our initial analysis, you decide whether you want us to go further. They're now at the point where they're giving that initial analysis job to chat GPT. Here are the problems. So what do the junior lawyers do now? Well, how do they get to be senior lawyers? Yeah, how, how do they, they go? How, how do they, they earn their stripes and how do they get progress? an understanding? And that was one of the things that I thought of too, is yeah. that you've got a bunch of senior lawyers and then when they retire one day, there's no junior lawyers that have grown up to replace them. But they're saying anyway, that they can get yeah. this analysis instantly. It literally is type in the question, type in, I've got a case that involves, and away you go, put in the details, and then instantly... It comes back, not five minutes, not an hour, not I've got to have a lunch break first. It comes back with that initial analysis. You know the grammar, the spelling's going to be right. You just have to make sure that it's picked up the right data, the right information, make sure it's used Australian law precedents, not American law precedents, whatever it might be. So that's a really interesting thing. And then for high volume things, this firm said, drafting wills, conveyancing, things that have got lots of similarity, if you like, in some of the things they're doing and then just fine-tuning some of the parameters, using it for that. I mean, I'm not sure that I'd like AI to write my will for me, for example, but <laughs> if you think about it, there's probably so much that's in common with a will from person to person. Maybe the exact assets might be different, but what you're doing with it and how it passes on and the, the language that's used in that, I'm sure mm. there's some basic templates. So that's one. This one really surprised me. People that run events platforms. So when they're trying to get people along to a gig, trying to get people along to something at the pub, people that just are trying to attract patrons to an event, I didn't think of ChatGPT for that. But they gave an example. They said there's one particular pub that has trivia, and our job, the events platform job, was to attract people along. So they gave this example. They simply input into ChatGPT, give me something or give me a, a paragraph that I can use to attract people to the railway hotel for weekly trivia. That was it. So their job is done. Go and do it. And it came back, and I will read it out. They came back and said, come join us every week at the railway hotel for a trivia night. Put your knowledge to the test while sipping drinks and enjoying good company. Whether you're a trivia veteran or a rookie, everyone is welcome. We'll provide the questions and you bring your sharpest <laughs> wit and the most challenging answers. So come join us in a relaxing and friendly atmosphere and see who can come out on top. Now, that's probably uh, half an hour work for someone yeah. to write that and get it right. It was a few milliseconds work for ChatGPT. Uh, and that's good enough in that form to put that straight up on the website to start attracting people along to your trivia night at mm. the Railway Hotel. So that was quite fascinating. Software developers. And I actually got my son who's studying computer science at the moment at uni. And I said, can you give me an example of ChatGPT writing some code? And he said, sure. And he just gave a simple example using the language C or C+. Give me some code. And it actually you could actually watch it writing the code as it went. So it didn't uh. give it back to you instantly. It wrote the code. And, and I'm going along and I remember a bit of C. I, I did so a lot of programming. So he watched on the screen himself being becoming quietly redundant. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And, exactly and, and right. this futility of this course that he's doing now mm -hmm. to go into an industry where should I worry about this last year of uni, Dad, or just <laughs> go out now? Uh, but we're going along. Influencer, and I remember a bit of C, and obviously my, my son's more advanced because he's studying it as we speak. But 
we're just going along. He said, oh, no, that's probably a clumsy way to do that. There's a more efficient way to do that. Okay. But it would still work. Yeah. And, and so what programmers now are doing is they're using this, again, as we speak, to write some code and then fine-tune it. correcting it. it. Yeah. Rather than start from scratch because it's pretty laborious to start from scratch and you might have a little syntax error here and there and so you've got to run that and test it. And just imagine the time you'll save in writing that code initially and then go back and fine-tune it. And the last example, which again, another one of my children, she's just finished her master's in architecture, and there's an architecture practice that doesn't use ChatGPT, but it's a, another similar technology called MidJourney. And what they do with that is they do initial designs to show their clients. So a client comes in and says, I want a new building, it's got to have this many staff in it, it's got to have this sort of open area, I've got this much floor space, all the parameters, they fill that in, and this comes up with five, ten, as many as they want, different designs. They'll look at them and go, oh, oh, yeah, wow. I think these three or four are probably the best. They go back to the client ten minutes later and say, right, here's what you wanted and here are the options for us. Which way do you like? Oh, gee, I like the look of that one there, right? We'll go there and then they'll still develop the specifications, make sure it adheres to the building code, make sure it will stay up when it's built, all those sort of things that an architect would do. But just that initial design to get you started down the path can be done by AI tools. So Matt, how long before Tech Talk with Matthew Dickerson is just done by AI? It is now. Oh. We, we don't exist anymore. <laughs> oh, no, we've given away the secret. I can feel myself <laughs> evaporating away. I feel like I'm back to the future. into the matrix. Where, where, where you know, when they they'd fade in and out of the photograph as <laughs> yeah. things would change, it's like we're, we're suddenly going. We're, Why is there this black cat in this room right now? So some of those jobs, that's just a bit of a snapshot. They were just some things that I could find fairly quickly on companies that are using AI right now. An exhaustive look at that would just produce so much more. It's a, it's a bit scary. One of the benefits of progressive government, though some may call it folly, is the investment in non-traditional breakthrough enterprises. And the interactive games industry fits that bill well and truly. The industry sagged a little here in Australia when the big dollars were pulled out about 10 years ago. But there's still quite a bit of money to be made in computer games today, and Australia has got some real potential. Am I right, Matt? You're right, and I'm unsure about this now. I thought it was a good idea when I first heard this announcement, but now AI is getting better than <laughs> do we really need games development? Just give it to Just, AI to yeah, do the whole lot. I'll invent your whole game for you. There was a fund that was cut, you're quite correct, about 10 years ago. There was a fund that was cut, and it's being restored by the current federal government, $12 million for financing games development. And some people might say, oh, games yeah. development. Why are you wasting your time? We've got people sleeping under bridges. We've got people that haven't enough food to eat. Give them that money rather than give it towards games development. But I think it's a good investment because I'm in technology. But also, if you can see an, an investment of a dollar that can produce $2, mm. then you think that's not a bad thing. And but the games industry is like a multi-billion dollar <laughs> industry, right? The games industry is like a $250 billion industry yeah. across the world. If you can tap into a bit of that, then that's not too bad. In Australia alone, this particular report that was run associated with this said that there were 770 new jobs created in the gaming industry in the last year, and that was without any injection in funds. That was just from games developers anyway. As we get more robotics, as we get things on our roof cleaning our solar panels for us, then we have more leisure time, and you can see the explosion in the streaming services, and you can see the explosion in games because people are trying to work out what do I do with all this time I've got on my hands now? I'm not having to work as hard as I used to work 100 years ago. Mm. What do I do? And so games is one of those areas that I can see will keep growing and obviously 
we want to be part of that. So the Interactive Games and Entertainment Association, which is the peak body in Australia, has obviously talked about this in very positive terms. It just gives the opportunity for some small companies in games development, gives the opportunity for any size company really, but if you can see that there's some money that can be invested to produce good outcomes. So if there's someone out there who's a young programmer thinking, well, maybe I can crack mm. this industry, they might be trying to get a job with an industry, but they might have this great idea of their own. That might be enough for them to try and go out there and start working away and producing their own gaming company. Who knows? This could produce another gaming company that can be a, a worldwide phenomenon or just a small phenomenon. Who knows? It just can generate a fair bit of money for Australia. So it's a good idea and sometimes it's worthwhile pouring a bit of money into some things to get a, a bit more out. Well, it's nice to see some innovation from the government. Yeah. And with the wind slowly and softly dying in our sails, we'll hoist them in and set adrift until next week. That's all we've got for you today, folks. Thanks for another cracking Tech Talk, Matt. And let me just say, I did all the research for Tech Talk this week. I didn't use ChatGPT, but... I wasn't watching him, folks, so I can't guarantee that. <laughs> should I use ChatGPT next week? Maybe I should come up with a concept where, where I sneak something in each week the on ChatGPT. The episode is brought to you by ChatGPT. Yeah, no, it's fascinating. Now, with significant wedding anniversary coming up this year, I'm off to convince my wife that a virtual diamond is as good as the real thing. Wish me luck. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in once again, folks. It's a pleasure bringing you Tech Talk each week, and we really appreciate you choosing us for those long car trips, or as a bit of educational background while you chip away at your chores, or for a bit of brain food while you kick back with a cuppa. Keep up your good work, folks, and we'll catch you in another week's time. I'm James Eddy, wishing you a fantastic week. We'll catch you again next time.